Um, our reading today is from Acts chapter 13, verse 13 onwards. It's on page uh, 1107 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, my sermon is a little bit shorter than usual, so I'm, I'm going to read um, all of this, all the rest of the, of the chapter. And just to situate yourself here, the, the, the places that are referenced are in modern-day Turkey. So, from Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers, He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish of the tribe of Benjamin who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not that one. No, but he is coming after me, whose sandals I am not, un- I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus. Yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news, what God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. But he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject us and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So... They shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Um, So good morning again everyone. I hope you're well. Uh, Christoph kicked us off in this series last week. We had started this about uh, two years ago, but we stopped halfway through. I can't remember why. It was probably a scheduling thing. But we're picking it up again here until the summer. And really, Acts is the story of the birth of the church. And like you'd expect at the birth of any church, there's a lot of stories of conversions and of evangelism and of preaching. And today's passage is nothing more than a straight explanation of the gospel. It's aimed specifically at a group of Jewish people, but it's still the gospel. I've been um, trying to do better at flagging up what I'm going to say in my sermons, at the very start of my sermons, by giving a little summary, a kind of taster of what's to come. And usually within that summary there's a hint of, of what the application might be. But today's passage, is, it really is just a straight shoot, a message of salvation for the lost and hope for the religious. So... Let's get into it. The majority of all that I read there is basically a sermon. And it's a sermon where Paul is trying to convince his listeners of the truth of his theology. He has a very important message for them. And it's one that if they accept, it will change their life greatly. And for some, that is exactly what did happen. And so, in this sermon, he is, as carefully and as forcefully as he can, using his knowledge of the Bible, which we know of as the Old Testament, to make a persuasive theological argument to his listeners. Right? Let no one ever tell you that theology is a wasteful endeavor. There's a place for it. It might not be your thing, But there will always be people in God's family who he calls to understand and explain to others all of what we find in this book. Anyway, it's a sermon chock full of the Bible. And by my count, in this sermon, Paul uses 
five direct quotes from the Old Testament. He references Old Testament stories 15 times, and on 11 other occasions, he uses standard Jewish doctrinal beliefs to make his point. So it, it is steeped in Old Testament theology, right? If you don't know the Old Testament, this, this, this thing he just said is going to go over your head. And, and in fact, because of that, I'm sure that at least some of you struggle to follow some of what he was saying, because the Old Testament is not as familiar to us as the New. And even when we have read it, where we are familiar with it, there's still definitely a sense that it can take a lot of work to understand, yeah? Because it's a book of stories about a people and a system of religion that's very foreign to us. But if you feel like that, don't worry, I'll, uh, I'll explain it. Well, I won't explain all of it, but I'll explain it good enough, I think. But firstly, let me say this. The argument that Paul is making here is very, very simple. He is saying that Jesus is the one that all of the promises of the Bible were pointing to. In the Old Testament, there are promises about a person who will come and lead the people of God and bless them and the world in a completely new way. And Paul is saying that this person is Jesus. And further, because the person they were waiting for has come, the world, as we know it, has totally changed. So with that in mind, let's, let's look what he actually said. Let's look at this story. It's a Saturday morning. Paul and Barnabas go to the synagogue. Paul is an educated Jew. We know from other parts of Acts that he had trained under a famous rabbi. So presumably when the two lads arrived in synagogue, some of the leaders came over, sussed them out, found out they were teachers of God's law. And so in keeping with their custom, when the various parts of their religious worship was finished, they let the visiting preacher stand up and say a few words. Little did they know what was about to be unleashed upon them. So Paul gets up, and we're looking here at verse 16. And the first thing to know is that he addresses both the Jews and the, the non-Jews. They were non-Jews who follow God, and they were allowed to come to the synagogue and worship with the Jews. And still to this day, Orthodox Jews believe that uh, non-Jews, or Gentiles, as they call them, can be right with God if they follow the seven laws that were given to Noah after the flood. Why Noah? Well, according to the story, everyone else was killed. So when God made an agreement with Noah and his family, he effectively made it with the whole world. And the rules that the Jews, the Jews have to follow, well, they come a little later on through Moses and Abraham. But the rules that cover non-Jews, they come from this covenant made with Noah. And in fact, I was listening to a rabbi recently, and he was saying, it's easier to be a Gentile, it's easier to be a non-Jew, um, than it is to be a Jew because a Gentile only has to follow seven laws whereas a Jew has to follow 613. And that's, that's actually uh, um, it's important for what we're going to cover in a second. But anyway, Paul stands up, addresses the congregation and in verses 17 to 22 he retells the history of Israel all the ways up to David and then in verse 23 he throws in his first theological grenade. He says, you all know that from one of the descendants of David, a saviour was to come. Well, he has. And that person, you all know him, you've all heard of him. 
That person is Jesus. Now you 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 gotta grasp just how big a statement Paul is making here. Right? So uh, listen to this. Whenever you go somewhere, but especially if you go to live there, <clears throat> you start to learn, well you have to learn all the local lingo, right? The slang, the locally used phrases, the geographical references, etc. etc. So since coming here, I've had to ask what does scundered or wee buns mean? Right? Never heard of it before. I've learned to pick up on the sometimes sneering, sometimes gently making fun tone of an urban dwelling person referring to someone else as being from west of the ban. But the absolute biggest learning curve for me has not been with slang, phrases, or geography, but references to people. Right? There's a lot of people I never heard of till I came here. For instance, before I came here, I had never heard of Jim Allister. I knew nothing of him, but most of you, I dare say, as soon as I said his name, can picture him in your head. You can probably hear him speaking. You know what he believes, what he stands for. You know some of the stories of things he has said and done over the years. And not only do you know all of that, you know that everyone else here probably does too. And so you could use his name alone in conversation with somebody else to convey a whole raft of meaning in just two little words. Jim and Alistair. All of which would be totally lost on someone who didn't know him, right? Okay? So, I say all that because a reference to the descendant of David functions in the same way for the Jews. When the Jews hear Paul mention the descendant of David here, their minds are instantly filled with a whole catalogue of stories and associated ideas. And in fact, this descendant of David does this more than even David himself does. Or the other two great Jewish names, Abraham and Moses. Because whereas Abraham is the father of the Jews, and to him were the first promises given that the whole world would be blessed through his descendants. And whereas Moses, Moses is the man who was given the law that showed him how to be a light to the nations. And whereas David was their greatest ever leader, the descendant of David would be the greatest leader in the world ever. He would, the Messiah, who would be lead them in taking the promises that Abraham was given in blessing the whole world, who would be the person who would lead them in following the law as it was meant to be, who would lead them finally to a world that they had been waiting for since way, 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 way back when, when God promised Eve that one of her descendants would crush the head of the evil one and make everything good again. So, you see, <clears throat> with this reference to a descendant of David... You don't just have a name that references all of our history. You have a name that references all of our hopes as well. In a more pointed way than anyone else in the entire Bible. One name. One name and countless prophecies. Well, well not countless. I think there's about 40 or 50 prophecies about the coming Messiah and his reign are summed up in that one name. And Paul says, effectively, that man that we've been waiting for he is here. So you can't say something <clears throat> like that without backing it up. So he starts to talk about Jesus and his life and the death and the resurrection. In verses 25 to 31, he references a number of things that happened to Jesus. 
Each point of information corresponds to something that his listeners would have known to expect about the coming Messiah. Somebody went before him to prepare the way, John the Baptist. He was not understood or believed by his own people, and he was rejected. All of these things that happened to Jesus in Jesus' life correspond with the hopes of a Messiah. But there's one part that does not. The Messiah was not supposed to die. And in fact, the prophecies say that his body would not see decay. And that's a bit of a problem, given that he was murdered by the Romans on one of their crosses. And so Paul spends a bit extra time with the other scriptures to explain that this was fulfilled, just not in the way that you expected. Because God resurrected Jesus, although he did die, his body will not see decay. So, to sum up, all these verses up to 38 is Paul using his knowledge of their knowledge about David and the prophecies associated with him and his descendant and he attempts to prove that actually Jesus is the promised descendant of David who will be their saviour. But there's a point of tension in that they expected the Messiah to live forever. <coughs> Excuse me. But Paul argues from the scriptures to prove that though Jesus did die his resurrection still qualifies him. No. Now that he has said all that he needed to say and showed them that Jesus is indeed the awaited Savior, he finishes off and brings it to a point by telling them the good news. Because Jesus is the Savior, forgiveness of sins now comes through him. The sacrificial system of Moses' time is over. All who believe in him, like we were singing this morning, can have the forgiveness of sins for every sin. And then lastly, he gives them a warning from Scripture. Don't be caught out. God is doing something new and expected. And just because he's doing it in a way you didn't expect, doesn't mean he isn't doing what he promised. This is really true. The Messiah, the Savior has come. Forgiveness for sins, a one-time-for-all-time kind of forgiveness, is now available to all who believe. And at first it would appear that this sermon was electrifying. Paul had instant converts. I get weekly email updates from a group of lads who go street preaching in Belfast. And every week they go out and every week the email comes in and it says, please pray for this guy, this lady, this person, this person. And to the best of my knowledge, in the four years I've been getting them, I don't know if anyone has been saved. But Paul preaches for a couple of minutes and they're queuing up afterwards. So much so, they invited them back the next weekend. And when they came back, the whole city was waiting for them. Now that's a sermon. This time, the next week that is, the reaction was again brilliant in that many non-Jews were were saved, but not everyone was happy. Some of the Jews got jealous of all the attention that Paul and Barnabas were getting. They started to contradict what Paul was saying, and they'd said bad things about him. And I want you to note as well there that in your pew Bible it says in verse 45 that the Jews were jealous and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. And it's not, not as clear as I'd like it to be. All the other translations are more explicit in making clear that their mode of expressing that jealousy 
was to disagree with what he was saying and speak personally against them. They were using theological arguments against them. He was saying X, Y, Z, and they were saying, no, no, that's all rubbish. And some of my friends bring all disputes between the church and others or between different groups in the church down to theology. But here at least, although they are using theological arguments, Luke is quite clear. They're just jealous. Underneath it all, they don't like what's happening because they're not at the centre of it. The end of the story here then is that many non-Jews were saved. The news of the good news spread around the region and many others were saved there too. And eventually, Paul and Barnabas have to leave the city because uh, some of the Jews stirred up some of the VIPs in that city against Paul. And then the two boys, in accordance with what Jesus himself said to do, shook the dust off their feet in protest and left. And that's the story of Acts chapter 13. So, what do we do, what do, we do with this? Well, firstly, let me tell you what I think is one of the most obvious things to do with a passage like this. Let me, let me appeal to those of you who don't believe. I mean, I'm not going to ask you to come up here or raise your hand you know, or something like that. But, but look at this passage. It's an evangelistic talk straight from the mouth of the greatest evangelist in the Bible after Jesus. The Jews were a people who, and still to this day, as I said earlier, Orthodox Jews believe that one must follow the 613 laws that they find in the Torah to be right with God. Now, you probably don't know about the 613 laws. But do you have this mentality, any of us, do you have this mentality whereby you either buy God's acceptance through what you do, how good you are, etc.? Or maybe... Or maybe you think you already have it. And the keeping of his grace and favour, well, that's dependent on how you do or how good you are. Now note, right, Paul didn't talk about heaven and hell here. His main argument is how to be right with God. Moses had given them an elaborate system of sacrifices and rituals. Paul was saying that this was now all unnecessary to be right with God. The Saviour was here. All that is needed is to be right with God, is to believe in him. You can't buy, nor do you deserve him on the basis of what you do. God can't be earned, nor is obliged to act favorably to you because of your behavior. And you know what? Here's the thing. That's not good news for some of us. Some people, some of us lead very good lives, and the idea that despite their goodness, God doesn't owe them anything... In fact, they still owe him everything. That's a hard pill to swallow. But if you are tired of continually getting up after falling down again and again to prove yourself, if you have so much guilt in your life, it's etched onto your head, or maybe you just know you can't please him, here's the good news. You aren't able to. But Jesus is... And he's willing to be a sacrifice for you that pays the price you never could. Is that where you are today? And look, let me, let me break that down for you in a couple of different ways. I know I'm talking to a group, a group of people here from a, a variety of different places in life. I know some of you come along because of the kids. Maybe the other half wants you to come. 
So you're here. You see us worshipping God every Sunday. And you don't disagree, but calling yourself a Christian feels like a step too far. You have enough integrity to know that, that doing that brings certain commitments. Well, look. Paul says God is doing something that's unexpected. You came for other reasons, but you've heard what we believe. If you believe it too, what, what's holding you back? Make the call, man. Come on. Some of you, I don't know how you ended up here this morning, but you're here anyway. And you're hearing God's word right now. And this idea that you don't have to work to earn God's forgiveness is radical news. Or that the good you've already done hasn't earned you God's forgiveness already. You know, that might upset you. Good. Let today be day one. Go to Christoph's house and join the introduction to discipleship group. Let him sort you out. It's a great group. And then lastly, the rest of us, I suspect it's the majority of us, and you're good, right? Richie's now going to finish with the altar call. Maybe he'll say something that applies to me. Well, I got something for us too. If you think that what I just said there a second ago about believing the good news doesn't apply to you also, then you've missed the big point. The idea that we are saved by faith alone is a necessary thing every day of our lives, every single day, every moment. God loves us enough send his son to pay the price for our sins. That sacrifice doesn't just gain us entry into a relationship with God and thereafter we live as good as we can. We should live as good as we can. But the desire to justify ourselves, the desire to put God in our pocket by what we do, those things never go away. Look at verse 43. Paul says to the people who were talking to him after the sermon, He says, continue in the grace of God. In the same way that you are saved by grace, we have to live in it. Folks, the gospel frees us up to love God and others freely out of a clear heart. Not for gain, not for recognition, and certainly not to make sure that we can be accepted by God. Because of Jesus, we have his acceptance. And you know what? Here's the interesting thing. I bet you a lot of you have heard that before. Or some variation of it. I hear it all the time. And I've noticed over the years of talking about grace that we can even turn that thing into a thing to be measured and to be done. Okay, I don't love to get God's love. I love because God loves me. Right, I, I know that. But then you start to notice all the ways that you clamor for acceptance or approval or all the ways that you try to earn God's favor. Even right now, as I'm speaking, some of you are listening to this and you know that you'll go home and you'll see all your old sin patterns, all the ways you fail to trust God for everything. Listen, brother, sister, he, he knows about that too. You're still forgiven. I think the old Puritans used to say, Father, forgive me for my repentance. You're still loved. You're still accepted because your faith in Christ, not your ability to live in the grace of God, 
is what saves you. So, go out this week, friends, and know that every one of your mistakes, sins, repeated sins, ingrained, long-seated failures are no bars to God's love for you. The Savior has come. He has freed you from the curse of the law. And he calls you to follow him. Go tell the people. Go tell anyone. The good news. Love your neighbor. And enjoy God. That's it. So, uh, let, me, let me pray. I think I was going to do announcements. But let me pray first. It's too much of a jump. Father, um, thank you for your words. Thank you for your gospel, Father. We are weak people trying to tell other people where there's gold, but we need it ourselves. Uh, Our acceptance of grace is filled with all sorts of qualifications. And we walk around with holes in our hands trying to hold on to water. Fill us with the living water of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with grace every single day, Father. Help us to keep coming back because that's what we need. I pray that anyone who doesn't know you will be affected by our message today and cross over the line with the help of your Spirit. We pray all these things in your Son's name.